If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On the 16th of March, 1190, the Clifford's Tower Massacre led to the deaths of all of York's Jewish population. Dean Irwin, a scholar of England's medieval Jews, talks to our content director, David Musgrove, about this terrible event and the wider story of the Jewish residents of medieval England. Today we are talking about uh, the events that happened at Clifford's Tower um, in March 1190, and I'm joined by Dean Irwin, who is an expert on this topic. So, uh, Dean, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining. Um, can you Give us an introduction first. Just drop us in to the story. Tell us what happened at Clifford's Tower, which is in York in March 1190. Uh, yes, yeah, so on the um, 16th and 17th of March uh, 1190, the Jews of medieval York died. All of them died, um, either at their own hands or at the hands of uh, people who were attacking them. Um, they sought refuge in the castle because a few weeks earlier, um, it's difficult to say precisely when, but presumably at some point in early March, uh, the um, various people had attacked the the house of Benedict of York. Um, they pillaged it and they killed his wife and widow. Um, and sort of seeing which way the wind was blowing, they, they, the Jews quite quickly sought refuge in um, Clifford's Tower. Um, and this was a particularly difficult position for them to be in because the castellan of Clifford's Tower at the time um, was a, um, a man called Richard Malbess um, who was heavily indebted to the Jews. Um, so he's not the best person to be looking after the Jews. And actually, he left the castle at one point and they um, basically seized it and refused to let him back in. Um, so as a result of this, the sheriff of Yorkshire, um, a man called uh, Richard Marshall, um, called out lots of local knights um, and people um, to besiege the castle and retake it. Um, and seeing wh- what was going to happen effectively, they were either going to 
die or be forced to convert, um, the Jews opted to take their own lives. Um, so the men um, slit the throats of their wives and children and then took their own lives. And any that didn't um, die on that evening of the 16th to the 17th um, were lured out with promises of their lives uh, by the besiegers, um, but ultimately were massacred um, be because they had no interest in, in sparing the Jews, even if they did convert. And from there, um, sort of the, the attackers went to, to York Minster, um, where they burned the, the records of their indebtedness to the Jews. So, so it, it's it's part of a two-stage attack. First, you kill the creditors and the Jews, and then you burn the records of your indebtedness and try to try to get off scot-free, effectively. Right. There's quite a lot in there. There's a, there's a few things that we need to uh, to unpack. So um, clearly a violent um, and, uh, and, and vicious assault. Um, uh, how many people were involved? How many um, Jewish people lived in York at the time, do we know? Um, so the population of, of York, uh, the York Jewry, uh, was around 150 men, women and children, and they all died um, at when that attack uh, happened either by their own hand or by the, the hands of the attackers. And that's the the, the total Jewish population of York, um, we think, who, who perished in this event? Yes, uh, effectively, the entire community is wiped out. Okay, so again, a further evidence of, 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 the, uh, of the brutality of this event. You, you mentioned Benedict of York um, there. Who was he? Uh, he was um, really one of the great Jews of 12th century England. He'd actually died a few weeks earlier um, as a result of a, a, attacks in London. He'd, um, the, the, the attack in York isn't an isolated event. It's part of a wide um, sweep of attacks on the Jews, which really start after Richard I's coronation uh, in early September 1189. And Benedict of York is at that event and he is forced to convert um, then and does, but then reneges on his conversion and um, basically dies of his wounds on the way back to York. Um, but he's one of the, the great Jews, so the fact that his house is attacked, it's probably one of the big stone houses, um, which is probably very difficult to get into, which again gives the other Jews time to, to, to escape. And it's also the place where you're likely to have the most money and Thus, it, it is uh, well worth attacking and plundering. Um, and you, you just mentioned then that this uh, event in York is not an isolated event. There have been other attacks on other Jewish communities um, uh, in cities around England. So uh, Lincoln, I think, was 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 another one. So so what what, what was what happened where? Um, so. The attack on, on the London jury occurs on the 3rd to the 4th of September at the coronation. And after that, Richard um, I issues orders that the Jews aren't to be attacked. And that might have worked had he remained in the country to enforce it. But shortly thereafter, he leaves for Normandy and then for the Crusades. Um, so there's no one really in England to enforce um, these orders. And effectively, violence sweeps up, and up the country um, and places like uh, Lincoln are attacked, but also Stamford. Um, at Bury, uh, the Jews are protected by the local abbot, uh, but then expelled um, by him. So it's quite a nasty business. And, and basically, they sweep all the way north up to York. 
Um, but York is definitely the largest community that's attacked, and it's also the the only one really that is totally wiped out by by the attack. Okay. So um, we've got a, a little bit of a scene setting here. We're in the reign of Richard I, Richard the, the Lionheart, the, the famous um, crusader king. Um, and as you said, uh, who didn't spend that much time in England during his reign. Uh, you, you told us he went off to Normandy and then off to Crusades. He's famous for not actually being um, in England very much during his reign. Um, can we can we get a little bit more uh, insight into the nature of the Jewish community in England in totality? Um, am I right in thinking that um, Jewish people were invited into England uh, by William the First, William the Conqueror, um, in uh, uh, after ten sixty six? That seems to be the case. It's quite difficult to say when they actually arrive in England. Um, so it's certainly sometime after the conquest, and it's either in the reign of William the Conqueror or in the reign of his son, um, William Rufus. So there's certainly a community in London by 1095. Um, and, and that's really the only community in London for the next half century. Um, and then in the reign of King Stephen, uh, the Jews tend to move out of the out of London and settle in other urban locations like Norwich, um, like, like Lincoln, and sort of in this central and eastern uh, point. And then... In 1189, uh, 1159, sorry, um, there's a second wave of settlement of England, which includes places like York and like Canterbury. And it's really in Henry II's reign that we start to see the blossoming of um, Jewish communities in, in various parts of, of England. And York is born out of that second wave of, of settlement. Uh, this is slightly out of your um, your your research area, so you may not know the answer. But is there, so, is there no evidence really for any any Jewish people in England prior to uh, prior to the Normans? Um, no, there isn't. That there are some isolated evidence that there might have been Jews in England in the Roman period, but actually, there's no substantive evidence of Jews in England pre 1066. Now, that's not to say that people didn't think about the Jews and they weren't aware of them and they might have encountered them on the continent, but there's no official established community in England before the conquest. It's really a, a product of um, of the Norman conquest. And that's a really nice thing about studying the Jews of medieval England because it's bookended by two definitive dates. You've got 1066 at the beginning and you've got 1290 at the end. Sure, twelve ninety being the expulsion of the Jews, which which we will uh, get to shortly. Uh, well, maybe not so soon. We've got a fair bit to cover. Um, and the, the so the Jews who came to England, where where did they come from? Where was where were they? Where, where were they based prior to to coming here? Um, the Jews predominantly come from Rouen, the the capital of Normandy, with the conqueror, and for the first sort of period of its life, the Anglo-Jewish community is basically an a, a um, an offshoot of the Rouen Jewry, the same people who live in uh, London live in Rouen and they have houses there. This changes after uh, 1135 when, when it's much more difficult to um, have cross-channel relations because, because of the anarchy. Um, but effectively, the Jews will always remain part French, effectively. They have strong... Um, relations with French Jewry after 
11.35. And even after 12.04, there's still, uh, and 12.04 and the loss of Normandy, there's still um, connections between the Jews of England and the Jews of France. But this is weakened as you go on um, further because the Jews become further ingrained into English society. And you, you mentioned the anarchy there, just to, uh, just as a reminder to our listeners. So that's the uh, event, 11.35 to um, 11.54, Stephen and Matilda um, uh, battling uh, for control of, of England and uh, a, lot of, a lot of violence going on there. Um, so so, so the, the, these Jewish people, they were coming from, from Normandy. Were they, were they speaking Norman French? Was that their language of choice? Um, yes, originally they would have spoken Norman French. Um, they seem to speak French throughout the, the 12th and 13th centuries as their, their preferred language, um, as well as Hebrew, obviously, within a, a community and possibly Latin and probably some English as well. So what um, what size of community did we have um, by the by the later 12th century then? How, do, can you put a number on how many how many Jewish people were uh, were living in England? Yeah, um, so historians calculate that there were around 5,000 uh, individual Jews um, in England by sort of um, the end of the 12th century, and this is really the peak of the, the, the size of the community. Um, so... Given the events that you, you that we started with, this this violent event um, that clearly implies um, tension um, between uh, the Jewish community and uh, and the non-Jewish community, um, how far is that tension manifested before eleven eighty nine and eleven ninety? Um, what 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 can you tell us about uh, about what goes on uh, before that? Um, well, the first thing to remember is that. Medieval England is an incredibly diverse place. So in that respect, it's not unusual to have people that are are from outside the community within medieval towns. But the Jews are the only religious minority who are technically allowed to live in medieval Christian Europe. So in that respect, they always occupy quite a difficult position. Um, and there are tensions. Um, these tend to be, the tensions tend to be... Um, more prevalent with people from outside the towns because these are people who've never met a Jew, so have no idea what a Jew is beyond what they've been told in the pulpit. But by the 12th century, it's been becoming increasingly common uh, to accuse the Jews of the act of um, deicide, i.e. killing Christ. Um, the Jews are also becoming increasingly involved in um, fields which are sort of becoming less popular for, for Christians, like money lending at interest. It, there's a clamp down on Christians lending money throughout the 12th century, and that's a gap that some Jews can fill. So there's a, a, a slight tension here, which is both religious and economic, that, that the Jews occupy quite a privileged, um, if precarious, position in English society. So um, sort of using... Um modern terminology which may not be appropriate i suppose they were they were quite othered were they were they were, 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 did they stand out in the community um if you were part of the community i expect not um jews don't tend to have any distinguishing clothes or features which is why in the 13th century uh, various regimes tried to get the jews to wear a, an official badge um the so-called tabula which re represents the two tablets of Mosaic law. 
And this is really the only way that you can distinguish a Jew from a non-Jew um, because actually they live together, they go to the same places. Uh, in the 12th century, we even get accounts in chronicles of Jews uh, walking freely through churches. Um, so in that respect, Jews will be where Christians are and it's not easy to tell the difference visibly uh, between the two. And uh, sort of linguistically, well, going back to the point you said uh, about the language they were using, I guess it wouldn't have been that unusual for people to be speaking Norman French in in, uh, in towns and cities either. No, and although we don't have evidence for it, they probably spoke English um, as well, because if you're going to deal with people on a daily basis, you, you need to be able to speak with them and communicate with them. Uh, and actually, there's some really wonderful evidence of people drinking together uh, Christians and Jews drinking together. So so in order to do that, implicitly, you need to be able to communicate. And that is as likely to be in English as in French, but it, it's difficult to say which. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned uh, sort of accusations of deicide earlier. Um, we haven't talked about the, the question of the blood libel. Um, what's that and how does that play into the story? The blood libel uh, or the ritual murder allegation is an incredibly pernicious uh, anti-Semitic allegation. It basically claims that somewhere in Europe um, every year the Jews um, abduct a child uh, and murder him in parody of Christ's crucifixion. Now, this is entirely fictitious, and it's always been entirely fictitious, um, but it first appears at Norwich in 1144, um, when a boy called uh, William of Norwich, uh, his body was found in Fort Wood just outside the city. Um, And the Jews were quickly accused of this crime. Um, And it's important to note that then as now we recognise this was um, a false accusation. Most people don't believe it, even in the the 12th century. Um, And the cults of um, the ritual murder uh, children never take off, so that's a good indication that, that they're not believed. Um, but truth has never really gotten in the way of a good story. Um, so there are thirteen um, accusa- at least 13 accusations of, of ritual murder between 1144 and the expulsion of the Jews from 1290. So although untrue, um, it's a convenient um, allegation to level against the Jews, particularly if the body of a child is found and there's no explanation of how he died. Um, And am I right in thinking that the Jewish community technically belonged to the king? Is that that a correct reading of uh, of events? Um, Yes, it uh, is technically true. The the Jews occupy a slightly precarious position in in England legally. this has its benefits, so the Jews are protected, the Crown will uh, enforce Jewish rights, but equally it, it has its drawbacks. Um, most notably, the, the Crown can really exploit the Jews um, to, to its own will, um, and that's particularly problematic because with unlike with some other uh, minority groups in medieval England, um, the Crown didn't need permission to tax um, Jews in the way that it would have uh, needed for 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 other groups. So th- does that mean the Jews were subject to particularly onerous taxation? Um, in the 12th century, on the whole, no. Um, the first person to recognise um, the, the, the financial potential of the Jews is sort of Henry II, 
And originally, he borrows money from the Jews, but later on realises that if he taxes them, uh, he can get the money without the uh, disadvantage of having to repay it. Now, under a, a financially sensible king, that's fine, um, but under a, 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 an uncareful king, it can actually be really damaging to Jewish finances. Um, and that's where King John um, becomes a, a bit of a problem. Um, his reign is not good for the Jews, um, but then again, it's not good for anyone. Uh, but he really does tax them uh, quite heavily for the first time. Um, most notably in 1210, you've got the Bristol Tallage, which demands 60,000 marks from the Jews. Uh, and there's some terrible stories uh, which come out of that, including uh, one unfortunate Bristol Jew who had a molar knocked out every day um, for a week until he agreed to pay what had been assessed on him. Um, and, and basically, on the eighth day, he agrees to pay, that he'll pay the money that he's supposed to pay. Um, and then in Henry III's reign, it's when it gets really bad, um, because Henry, um, during the 1240s and 50s, effectively does annual high-level taxation upon the Jews. Um, and over that period, he extracts roughly 100,000 marks from the community, which is about a third of the overall coinage which was in circulation at the time. Uh, and it reduced a lot of um, Jews to the point, point of bankruptcy. And actually, they never recovered from that that heavy fi annual financial exactions throughout the 13th century. Right, okay, we've um, that's that's fascinating. We've got slightly ahead of ourselves, so we, we need to um, step back uh, just a moment, um, back to back to 1189 and 1190. So we talked quite a lot there about uh, uh, the context and the place of, uh, of uh, Jewish people in England in the 12th century. Uh, and we talked about debt, we've talked about these, um, uh, these fictitious accusations of blood libel, we've talked about um, some general tension between Christians and Jews um, uh, throughout the period. What specifically, and apologies we've already covered this, but what specifically sparked off uh, the events of 1189? Why, why were Jews targeted um, following Richard I's uh, um, accession? That Again, it's a difficult question to answer because there are lots of factors that go into this. But crusades are always accompanied by... Um, attacks on the Jewish communities. We see this in the First and Second Crusades. It's not really a problem then for, for England because we don't have a heavy involvement in those um, ventures. But the Third Crusade is different. Uh, we we are one of the main players in that. Um, so one wonders why you'd go 2,000 miles away or however far the Holy Land is um, when actually you can kill infidel at home. Um and also, in order to fund your own crusading endeavours, you usually have to to, to borrow money, uh, and this can be from the Jews, and it's never going to go down well if you have to, to indebt yourselves to the enemies of Christ um, in order to um, go and kill uh, infidel in, and reclaim the Holy Land. So, um, as you say, it's complicated, but clearly... Uh a desire to rid themselves of debt did in some way drive um, what happened uh, in York because, as you said, um, the people who uh, who rioted then went on their way to York Minster and attempted to burn the evidence of the debts that they had um, to, to, to the Jews. So, um, so presumably a, a, a desire to expunge 
evidence of debt is is a driver here. I, absolutely, I I think um, that's that's where the social dimension uh, comes into this. Um, people at all levels of society borrow money from the Jews. But the people who are particularly involved in the uh, attacks on, on the the York Jewry um, are, are the Knights of Yorkshire, and these are again the people most likely to 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 be burdened by debt. Still to come on the History Extra podcast, and actually the the limited impact of the attack can be seen in the fact that by eleven. Uh, by 1195, there was a Jewish population in Yorkshire again. And actually, by the, the early decades of the 13th century, the largest community in England would be York. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So uh, going back to the start of the conversation, so um, the, the imperiled Jewish population in York, they take refuge in Clifford's Tower. And Clifford's Tower um, today is a, is a fine stone keep. Um, it wasn't a fine stone keep in 1190, was it? Um, no, it wasn't. It was a fine wooden keep, um, which was really a, a relic of the, the, the late 11th century. Um and it must have been. It's also an incredibly small site when you go there. Um, so to cram 150 men, women, and children who were very scared and very desperate into that space must have been 
really terrifying. Uh, and because it's of Motton uh, Bailey construction, effectively the Jews would have had a, a bird's eye view of um, of the their attackers gathering around the bottom of the the tower, which cannot have uh, improved um, their optimism for the situation. And it would have become very clear. Uh, for really from the outset um of that gathering that they were going to lose so yes it it's a it's a wooden keep which would have been given them a perfect view of what was going to happen mm, so it must have been as you say terrifying for the for the people inside what do we know about uh, about the specifics of of the event of their um are there uh, accounts that um that detail precisely what went on um so obviously it these have some um, license because no no Jews survived the attack, so so you don't have actual inside view. Um, but chroniclers do comment on it. Um, both Christian and Hebrew common uh, people um, comment on it. Uh, and from these, we get more or less the same image: all Jews die, um, largely by their own hands. Uh, again, that's an important point that comes through both chronicle traditions um but we also know that they set fire um to both their possessions uh, not wanting the the attackers to get them but also to the castle as well and it it, it effectively reduces uh the the castle quite significantly so so there's fire going on there's um smoke everywhere presumably and then you start uh killing each other uh, and it's it's just not a nice place to be. So it doesn't take very long before the entire Jewish population um, is deceased. That that is the consequence of this um, uh, of this atrocity. Um, and then writers go to the minster and uh, do they manage to to burn the evidence? Oh yes, they, they're they're very successful at it. They do it right in the middle of the church. Um, and so uh, so the up so. Do they manage to expunge the evidence? Then is that does they rid themselves of their debts? Uh, they rid, rid themselves of the debts to the Jews, um, but King Richard is qu- quite rightly not happy about uh, the attack. So he sends an army north um, to to to, no, uh, to to restore order and the king's peace to to York, uh, and heavy fines are imposed upon. Uh, the citizenry of York who are, have find a recording to their individual wealth rather than their role in the the um the attacks the the knightly classes and, and those of higher status had quite bravely uh, retreated to Scotland um to avoid the king's wrath um and later made their ki- their peace with the king but again they were fined um and and to some extent, this is all that could be done, uh, fines and heavy fines at that, because you can't execute everyone who's been involved. Mm. You, you preempted my next question, which was what was the punishment for the people of York? So heavy fines. Was there was there any evidence of sort of a penitential attitude from anybody? If there was, there's no evidence of it. Um, I also think probably that there was this. It was pragmatic. Um, that this had happened and they were were going to pay their fines and move on. So um, that leads on to uh, a a topic that you tackle in your thesis, which is the the paradox of Jewish history. How How does this event lead to the paradox of Jewish history? And indeed, what is that paradox? 
Yes, so um, it's been argued by historians, basically, that as a direct result of the attack on York, and particularly the burning of the debts, um, when Richard returns from the Crusades, he establishes what is known as the archive system, uh, which is basically a system of chests whereby debts are recorded and the Crown keeps a copy. Um, now, that's not a terribly convincing argument because putting um, debts in a wooden box is no more effective than putting them in the middle of a church um, in, in terms of protecting them. So in that respect, this is part of a much wider um, system of, uh, systematic uh, reform at the top of government, whereby every everything's coming under scrutiny. Um, but the Crown certainly does uh, require that um, debts be recorded from 1194 onwards, um, and quite a lot of those records survive. And is this is this the Exchequer of the Jews? Um, no, the Exchequer of the Jews is sort of set up to administer that system effectively. It's a system, uh, it's a department of government which the Crown uses to regulate the Jewish community, um, to collect taxes from the community, but also there's a law court associated with the Exchequer of the Jews where cases involving debt can be heard, uh, and quite a lot of the, the proceedings of the Exchequer of the Jews do relate to, to debt. The Crown um, nominally expected that any case which involved a dispute between a Christian and a Jew be heard in a royal court. Now, there are exceptions to that, and people don't always uh, follow that precedent. But effectively, the court is established um, to facilitate disputes between um, Christians and Jews. And what, um, so in the light of, of this uh, of this bloody massacre in 1190, um, What's what's the consequence of the relationship between Christians and Jews thereafter? Presumably, the Jewish population is in fear. Um, do, do, do Jews try and protect themselves? Do they, you know, go into uh, go into some sort of defensive routine? What what happens? I mean, I'm not sure what the Jews could do. Um, they're not an armed population. They're not a large population either, so it's not as if they can do anything. But actually, I think it had almost no impact upon uh, the Jews whatsoever. Certainly people knew about it, they recognised that it was terrible, but also they recognised that there was very little that could be done about it. And actually, the, the limited impact of the attack can be seen in the fact that by 11, uh, by 1195, there was a Jewish population in Yorkshire again, and actually, by the, the early decades of the 13th century, the largest community in England would be York. Um, so in that respect, it grows back very quickly. Um, and, and I think also, actually, these things only really happen uh, at times when royal authority is its weakest. Um, so in 1190, uh, Rich is out of the country. We see it again in 1264, 1265, when Simon de Montfort's um, rabble attacked the Jews. But this is when the royal authority is its weakest. When you've got a strong king uh, who can assert himself, actually the Jews don't need to worry about attacks uh, of any kind. And also, um, just as a, a final point, what we see in the 13th century is not Jews being attacked by their neighbours. If you live with people uh, in close, close confines, they tend not to be the people who attack you. The people who attack 
are the people from outside the, the region who don't really know yet, who have this idea of what a Jew is as opposed to knowing actual Jewish people. And, and I think that's where it becomes um, particularly dangerous for for Jews. And these are the most people most likely to get caught up in crusading further as well. Nevertheless, it is quite hard to comprehend how Jewish people could be going back and living in York only a few years after this um, this t- terrible attack, when that when people were singled out specifically because of the religion that that those you know the, the Jewish people who then went to the city followed. That it's it's quite hard to fathom how that could happen if that was you or me. You know, w- would you? Would you go somewhere where you knew only a few years earlier that that someone had been singled out and murdered or caused to commit suicide because of the faith that they followed? Um, Yes, in the modern world, we'd have the option to go somewhere else. But equally, where else are the Jews going to go? They are in Christendom. Um, This is founded on Christianity. And actually, um, if they want to live in a a region and have the protections afforded by that they don't have a great deal of choice of where where else they can go right so uh let's let's charge on a bit we need to get to the to the end of the story we've talked a bit about what happens through the 13th century and particularly about debts and money lending you you um you um outlined a bit there i wonder if you can take us up to the 1290 expulsion how uh, how does that come about and uh, and it, how does that follow from 1190 if at all um, so in older scholarship, um, the route from 1190 to 1290 was quite a, a quite a short one. Um, it was seen that um, the Jews really never recovered from the 1190, but actually they did, and they prospered in the early decades of the 13th century. Um, but it's in the reign of Edward the um, First that that things um, again go from bad to worst. Um, so in 1275, having returned from from, from crusade, um, Edward effectively put, imposes wholesale legislative reform on the Jews, which basically regulates where they can live, what they can do, what they have to wear, but also stops them lending money at interest. Uh, and this is really the beginning of the end for the Jewish community. Um, it's not helped in 1278-9 when you have the so-called coin-clipping pogrom, where hundreds of Jews are executed by the Crown for, for the crime of coin-clipping. And really, a decade after those events, um, the Jews are expelled from England in uh, 1290. The order for, to expel the Jews is issued on the 18th of July, uh, and it comes into effect on the 1st of November, All Saints' Day. And although the Jews are allowed to leave with their movable goods and given affordable uh, passage out of England, um, that they are they effectively have to go quite quickly, um, and they're not allowed to return until the mid seventeenth century. Okay, wrapping up, you can have a nice day out at Clifford's Tower today. I've spent a lot of time in York. I've been there many times, and it's got lots of good heritage attractions. It's a good historic day out. And the castle, the nice round tower on top of the Mott um, is, is, a, is a good place to go. There's some redevelopment going on there right now, I think, from English Heritage doing some uh, doing some work on it. How, uh, as, a, as a scholar of, of Anglo-Jewish history, medieval history, how do you think the story is is told clearly enough in the castle? Do people get this sense that uh, that some pretty nefarious activities have gone on there in the past? Uh, yes, they do. Um, 
the wonderful work done by Tony Griffiths for her PhD thesis a, a few years ago actually showed wonderfully the the brilliant job that English Heritage have done uh, in recent years. Um, in 1978, um, the, there was a plaque unveiled at the foot of the, the Clifford's Tower, which you now walk past as you go up the, the stairs to the, the keep. Uh, but also you've got the the, the, the often hidden uh, memorial of the daffodils um, on the uh, mound, which which appear every, every spring. Um, and I think actually that's much more important because it... it a, it reflects the style of David, but also it shows the renewal and continuity of the Jewish community. The the, the Jews after 1190 sprung back up um, relatively quickly uh, and, and lived and prospered in, um, in York for the rest of the 13th century. And I think it's a lovely metaphor, the daffodils for the Jews of York um, in 1190. Mm, absolutely. Um Right. That, well, that's that's um, that's that's gone over all my questions. I wonder, um, is there anything I've not given you a chance to say, or any sort of summarising, concluding points you'd like to like to um, finish with? Yeah, um, I'd just say that we've um, talked a lot about negative history. This is what uh, Saul Baron termed the lacrimose conception of Jewish history. But actually, Jewish history can also be quite beautiful. Um, and in our rush to to sort of say that. Um, the events of 1190 were horrific, and they absolutely were. We shouldn't necessarily forget that this wasn't the whole story of England's Jews. That there are some beautiful chapters in England's Jewish history, and they deserve exploring as well. That was Dean Irwin of Canterbury Christchurch University. If you want to know more about the events Dean discussed in today's episode, there's a feature on our website, historyextra.com. Just search for Clifford's Tower. The link is also in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear the first episode in our new Bayer Tapestry series. Mm-hmm.